everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Educate. This time, I have to say, it's not me, myself and I in a ropey fort. I'm thankfully graced by the wonderful presence of Deanna Lynn Cook. Hello, thank you for having me again. I'm very honoured to be here. Truly, I can't believe we're actually making this work with Wi-Fi and our own microphones. I know, we've really, we've come a long way, you know, we really have. It's been a beautiful journey, Dee. Absolutely beautiful. The best. Um, so I know that I just love to pester you to come on to my show. And yeah. you've done such brilliant episodes um, in your previous ones on Educate. Thank and you so much. I think it is just absolutely time to do a live recording. So I'm just, I'm going to hand over to you, baby girl. Okay. Um, Thank you. So tell me what you're teaching me and what we're going to do today. So today I thought we'd keep it quite contextual with, you know, everything that's going on in the world right now. Um, and we're going to look at the Windrush scandal and the Windrush kind of history more broadly. Um, so okay. that will be the lesson today, the Windrush scandal. Gosh, yes. Um, horrendous. Yeah, it absolutely. Utterly, utterly awful. Um Oh gosh, I don't even know where 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 we would start. I think we're going to start with a quiz because why not? <laughs> <laughs> it's not usual to talk about a scandal and give you a quiz, but we are uneducate and we are educating you and the listeners. So I thought we'd give you a few. It's only four four quick questions about the Windrush generally, um, just so we can get into the context of it, and then we'll go into the scandal. Okay, brilliant. So, starting off with the first question. When did the Windrush arrive in Britain? Um, if you don't know the exact date, give me the, you know, the decade. Okay, so I think it was post-war. Correct. Um, so we're looking at, um, I think, like the early 1950s. So I'm going to say 52. Okay, you were four years out, but you you are right. It was a post-war era, but it was 1948. Britain were really desperate to rebuild their country. You know, they'd suffered like lots of structural da damage um, after the war, after the Germans had bombed a lot of parts of um, the major cities in Britain um, and they needed labour to come and peace back Britain. So they were coming to rebuild Britain. people's houses and yep. like, oh, right. Okay. And also things like the NHS had just been created. So they were coming to work as nurses um, and different like roles in the NHS, as well as like factory work and labour, building physical buildings and just kind of filling in the gaps um, because obviously after the war, lots of people had died and the people that died were people that would have worked, you know, men of working age. So kind of just filling in the labour supply, really. OK, why is it called the Windrush? Um, well, it was a warship and it, the name is just the SS Empire Windrush. Um, just the name of the ship. Lots of the ships that came, you know, transporting people to and from the Caribbean to Britain just had lots of different names. The one my granddad came on was the SS Columbia. There was the Ormond, the Almondorza. There was, yeah, loads of them. So you just said your granddad came on one of them? Yeah, my granddad came in 1954 at, at the age of 22. Yeah, he was my age and he got dropped off in Mile End. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That is so interesting. Just for a bit of context, um, we we laugh at that because Mile End is where we went to, well, we went to university at Queen Mary, but Mile End is basically where Queen Mary is exactly. and where a lot of us live. Yep. That is so interesting. I know, right? I didn't realise this, but all of these records, by the way, you can find on Ancestry.com. So you can find all the landing records 
um, of, you know, people and when they landed in this country from the different ships. So we searched my granddad's name within the records and we found his ship. I found my grandma's as well. I can't remember what that one was called, though. Um, but yeah, there's like lots of information online. And you would have thought yeah. that the government would have utilised this information to see when people landed, but they didn't. Yeah. And now we're here. <laughs> oh, so annoying. So did your grandparents meet in the UK? Yeah, they. well, no, they knew each other in Jamaica, um, but they were quite young. And I think they, I don't think they went to school together, but they were from the same um, place in Jamaica. Then they both came. My grandma came, I think, three years after my granddad. And then they met in Birmingham um, and got married. God. So cute. I love yeah, it. Yeah, very cute. Very cute. Sorry, I've totally interrupted the quiz. <laughs> no worries. Okay, question two. Um, how many passengers do you think were on board the SS Empire Windrush? Oh my gosh. I. You can just give me to the nearest 100 if you want or, or to the nearest 10. I know this is really dumb, mm. but... I don't even know if it's in the context of like a hundred people or a thousand or thousand. Do you it, not? It's a weird like, one. You don't. You don't really think about. You just think that people came. But I've never even thought about how much before I did the research for this today. So don't worry if you get it wrong. I'm gonna say maybe there were like five hundred on the ship. Okay, I mean double that, and there we are. It's a, about a thousand and twenty-seven people. Um, to be honest, about five hundred of them were from Jamaica so right yeah you were I mean you got the you guessed the Jamaicans um <laughs> but yeah there were about a thousand people so you know in the grand scheme of things compared to the population of Britain at the time not actually that many people come into the country um on, right, that, okay. on that first kind of post that's a big ship. ship though isn't it yeah I'm thinking like cruise ship that's what I have in my head I have to remember it's not a boat it's an actual ship oh my but gosh. these ships were used in the art in the war so these were big, you know, ships to transport, whether that would be goods or arms or utilities and things like that. So I need you to guess maybe three nationalities of the people that came on the Windrush. Oh, okay. So firstly, Jamaican. Yep. Well, it's, it's going to be Caribbean, but I don't think I should deserve a point for that. No. <laughs> um, Barbados? Um, it's not on my list, and I'll explain why after, but I assume there would have been people from Barbados, but it isn't on my list, but I'll explain after. If you want to give me one more, or I can just explain. Oh my God, explain. Okay, so essentially, Jamaica, Bermuda, and Trinidad had the highest, you know, kind of groupings of people, um, and British Guyana. Um, and then after that, the next, like, per, like group of people that came were the Polish, um, and they docked at Mexico, because obviously these ships that came from the Caribbean to England didn't just go straight across the ocean. They would stop off at different Caribbean countries, and in the Americas, and then head round to Britain. Um, so they had stops in Mexico, where they picked up a lot of um, Polish immigrants who had been displaced by the war. Um, they'd picked up people in Gibraltar as well, um, as well as the Caribbean islands. Um, I, Barbados wasn't on the list because it was kind of, it gave me the like top six. Right, okay. So I, and then it said like other Caribbean. So they got kind of grouped into like a little other unfortunately oh, right. that tends to happen because people forget that it wasn't just jamaicans although they made up the vast majority um it wasn't just them on the ship i didn't realize that um that it kind of went to different places yeah my granddad always used to tell me that he traveled the world and my granddad had only like after he came to britain he'd only been back to jamaica or to america to see family and i was like granddad what are you talking about you haven't traveled the world thinking the dementia had got him but no, he was he was the reference in the point where he came via Jamaica. He went to I think it was um, Barbados. He went to the Bahamas. He went to Colombia um, and America, all on his travels to um, England in nineteen. That sounds 
amazing. It does. It does. And the the cruise ship, the cruise ships. Wow, it wasn't a cruise ship. The um, ships were quite entertaining. Um, most of the records I've read from people that were on the Windrush or on other um, ships coming from the Caribbean, they had entertainers on there. They had singers. They'd have boxing matches in the evening. They would have dances, and it was like a really jolly time. Like a lot of the people. Well, not a lot of them, but some of the people could afford to be in first class. And even the ones in first class would say they'd go down to like the lower decks just to kind of hang out with the people and have fun on an evening because you were traveling for about two weeks, sometimes a little bit longer. Wow. Yeah. That sounds so interesting. Are there any um, are there any programs or films that like dramatize that? You know what? I don't think there are. There's, um, I'd say the two books that are kind of well known about, you know, speaking on the Windrush generation are The Lonely Londoners by um, Sam Selvon and um, Small Island, Andrea Levy. But they don't really go into depth about the journey. They talk about more of the experiences once in Britain. So maybe, Katie, that is a show for you to create. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like I can personally write that, but uh, I'd, I'd love to work on it. <laughs> well, I could be your historical researcher and you can do the writing. Oh my gosh, I'd love it. Educate exclusively. <laughs> oh my gosh we're branching into dramas I we love are, it yeah no fully we're gonna make that um if there are any directors out there I mean sorry but if you steal this and this is in development in the next year we're gonna sue we just will so. sue we, and we have receipts <laughs> okay <laughs> so final question um and it's a perfect segue but this whole Windrush scandal, we haven't gone into it yet, but how long ago do you think maybe the scandal started or issues with immigration um, for Caribbean people kind of began? Okay, so um, I think it started in 2011. Okay, so you're five years out. Um, it started in about 2006, 2007. Um, and that was kind of the first whisper of, you know, there's certain people in this country that you know might be struggling to prove that they are British citizens um, and that's when the kind of immigration home office started getting like questions and queries were being pulled up um, and it hasn't really come out properly until 2017 so that's like for some people a 10-year struggle um, and, oh, e- and even more for some people. Just horrendous um, yeah. it will be really good if you kind of explain actually what is the Windrush scandal um, because I'm sure there are lots of people that have maybe heard about it in the news or heard it referenced recently, especially on like social media. Absolutely. Um, so basically, as we've said before, the SS Empire Windrush came to Britain in 1948. And in that exact same year, which made that possible, um, the Commonwealth Nationality Act was passed. And that meant that any person that is born in the UK or its Commonwealth colonies have the right to British citizenship, which means you have the right to live in Britain. So Jamaica mm-hmm. at that time is a Caribbean, is a British colony. So is Barbados, Bermuda, British Guyana, Trinidad, um, all these countries, um, especially in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this gives people essentially a British passport. And on the British passport, it literally says a British passport of the colonies. And then it will say your country that you've been given it in. So it would say like Jamaica on the bottom as well. Right. Okay. Um, so it meant that all these people coming over were British citizens. Um, you can't really take someone's British British citizenship away, although we know we've seen that happen with Shamima Begum um, earlier last year. Um, but it, essentially, there was a series of laws passed when the government decided it had had enough um, immigrants coming in this country. It had decided that there were enough people. Um, they didn't really want any more. Um, and they passed a series of other immigration control acts 
that then led to the scandal. So, starting with the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act, that ended the kind of like right to Caribbean people to live in the UK that the 1948 Act had allowed. So it was a kind of the first kind of level of control because there was a lot of racial tension in Britain in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, people weren't getting on because you have to understand that Yes, the government wanted people from the Caribbean to come over and rebuild their country, but British people didn't necessarily want that. British people didn't necessarily ask for that. British people had never really been educated on the fact that black people were living in British colonies in the Caribbean, living a very similar life to them in the sense that their education was the same. They had a British education. Their teachers were British. Their doctors were British. Their ministers, their prime ministers, the people in power were all British. Yeah, okay essentially you're, you've got little britons around the world oh god this is the time of empire god but, help everybody right <laughs> but the people in britain at the time they didn't really they were never educated on that they didn't know that and so when they came you have you know the rise of like nationalism um and racism you've seen the signs you know no blacks no irish no dogs you've got keep britain white those kinds of things are going around um because British people have decided that they don't want to see these immigrants taking their jobs, taking their women, taking up space. Um, And so you've got pushback and this pushback makes its way into politics. Um, So we've had this, we've had the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act. And then we've got the 1971 Immigration Act, which is a kind of pivotal one. Um, It protected the rights for people that had come in, you know, under this 1948 Act to live in the UK if they'd already settled by 1973. So 1973 is this cut-off point, um, which is quite important, especially for sitting in limbo. um, You had to prove that as long as you were in this country, in Britain, by 1973, you have a right to be here and you have a right to stay here and you have a right to reside in the country. Right, okay. So if you, for example, arrived in 1974 yep and you didn't have um documentation of that or anything to kind of back up that that was when Uh, okay so yeah if you came in 1974 none of those things would apply to you by then jamaica is independent so you would have had you wouldn't have been able to get a british passport in jamaica you would have had a jamaican passport so you would come over in the same way that other immigrants would come over like if you were from america or australia you need a Mm -hmm. visa you need a job that you were coming to or you would need you know like those documents so you you weren't coming under this kind of free movement it's kind of like the eu you know how we can move around the eu or just about anyway (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, it's free movement of people it's essentially that within the caribbean commonwealth countries it's a free movement of people and after 1973 they stop it they say that movement is not allowed anymore so the scandal kind of begins um in the kind of 1990s early 2000s it's kind of like we start tiptoeing around this idea of a hostile environment um, for illegal immigrants in this country. Um, I can only assume that in the 1990s and 2000s is when we started to see a lot of uh, EU immigrants coming into the country. Okay. And I think all the time, it's kind of a pattern in Britain, whenever a different wave of immigrants come in, whether that was the Irish or the Polish or black people from the Caribbean, black people from Africa, or people from the EU, there's always a pushback and they are always scapegoated into the problems that are wrong with Britain. It's always a case of, you know, there are no jobs because all the immigrants are taking them or there's crime because of the immigrants. So again, this kind of pushback from people that then, you know, seeps its way up into politics um, starts to happen as you see more EU migrants coming into the country. Yeah, Um, of course. This kind of comes 
to a head, you could say, in 2012. We've got Theresa May as our Home Secretary. Um, and she puts um, this hostile environment, she kind of puts it on paper, essentially, and puts it into law. In 2014 and 2016, there were two acts passed. And they right. basically mean, that. I mean, they said a lot in them, but the key points for this um, situation is the fact that it meant that the burden of proof to prove that you are a British citizen and have a right to stay in this country is on you. It's no longer on the Home Office to prove that you're, you are, you have a right to be here. That's just bonkers. You wouldn't, that just seems like barbaric, doesn't yeah, it? It does. And also, which was the bit that I think divided politicians definitely, was also it meant that landlords and managers, business owners, they have now got the burden on them to either evict anyone that can't prove that the right to live in this country and the right to rent, which is why you have to kind of hand over a passport or um, ID or something when you rent a house or if you get a new job that's why we have to give our passports in and you know or you have to have your right to work documents it put yeah, the pressure yeah. on business owners and bosses and politicians were like you know it shouldn't have to be the case um, that a landlord or a manager has to chase up whether someone has the right to be here or not why is that now our business kind of thing yeah, I mean, that just shows a lack of leadership, though, doesn't it? They haven't done their due diligence, maybe? Yeah. They haven't They haven't kept their files? <laughs> Correct. Um, and also, it, I think it's just the fact that, you know, Theresa May and the government at the time, they wanted it basically to be hostile. If you're an illegal immigrant in this country, they want you to feel like you have nowhere to go. You have nowhere to live. You have nowhere to work. There is nothing you can do but, you know, hand yourself in and go back to your country. That is right. the that's the kind of premise behind it. That's why it's hostile. They want to make it hostile. I don't know if you remember the vans that were going around London saying, you know, if, if we don't find you, like someone will. If you're an illegal oh. immigrant, it was this kind of idea that we're onto you. You know, if you don't prove that you can be here, you're going. It just drives me insane. It kind of kind of sounds like I don't know some really horrendous, I don't know, film. Where it's... Yeah, and the thing about it is, is it just proves that. I don't know. Does this government see humanity? It's a thing of like, you know, in 1948, when we needed people to build a country, yep, we'll have anyone, we'll take everybody in. But as soon as we don't need anyone anymore, you know, get out. You're a burden on our NHS, you're a burden on our benefit system, get out. And that is exactly what it is. But the fact that, you know, you're putting up a border because somebody, you know, isn't going to contribute financially enough to this society um is it makes me feel a bit sick but especially a country like britain it's not like we're on our feet or on our knees sorry it's not like we're on our knees it's a big economy it's, i think it's the fifth largest in the world within the context of you know seeking out who is an illegal immigrant it's never going to be white people that are ever picked on in that situation yeah. because if you look at the average white person you're going to assume that they're from britain as, as long as they can speak english yeah. it's when you look at a brown person or a black person you're going to say oh should you be here you know, do you have the right to be here? And that's what we see. And this is where I think a lot of people are like, oh, this could have happened to any group of immigrants that came to this country. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't really believe that because you don't ever point out a Canadian or an American and say, oh, could should you be here right now? You just assume because they're white. I'm yeah. sorry, that's definitely the case. Um, no, and there's sure. been a lot of debate as to, you know, whether this was, um, you know, a racist targeting of a, sp a specific group of people. And I completely believe it was. Um, I think it's the same thing, just like in the 1960s, when British people were absolutely fed up of their streets changing, the cultures changing, um, more black faces around, and they pushed back at it. And I think exactly the same thing happened now. 
Um, and that's yeah. why we've seen this happening. Oh, for God's sake. I just think, how can people be so inhumane? <laughs> yeah, but... it's disgusting. And the worst thing about it for me is the fact that, you know, if you came to Britain in, 90, in the 1940s, um, 1948, you know, as a 22-year-old, you'd be about 90 now. Um, and if you came any time, sorry, between 48 and about 73, you'd be anywhere from about 60 to 90. So these are old people. These aren't yeah. like young people that can, you know, up themse- uproot themselves and maybe go somewhere else and, you know, find a job and work and raise a family. These people have been in this country for tens of years. They have settled They're here. They, they cannot, you know, uproot and go back. Like, I don't know, my um, nan, she came in like 56, 57. She physically could not go on a plane right now, let alone a detention centre. So the fact that they were doing it to, to old people, it, I think it hurts me even more. Like I just, yeah. see, I see my grandparents, I see my parents' generation. I, I just think that's, it's just awful. It's so inhumane. I mean, reg- age shouldn't even be coming into this, but yeah. there's something about, I don't know, culturally you'd think you're you're taught I yeah. guess maybe change slightly differently now maybe in Britain I don't know but respect your elders absolutely if the government is doing that um as part of policy it just totally goes against any idea of respect yeah absolutely but I think well for me personally that just sums up that government that is unfortunately still in power today <laughs> on slightly um to the kind of how this kind of hit you know the media how this kind of story these stories like picked up so obviously we said you know this started in around 2006 2007 um because basically the uh landing cards of these people so you know the ones i said you could find on ancestry.com they're not there so you have the record the ship records which are just literally lists of names um They'll say your name, your date of birth, and your trade, your trade or your occupation. Right, um, yeah. They're available there, but people's actual landing cards, you know, that say your name. I think they might have a picture on, and they'll be signed by the person at immigration when you've landed and when you arrived. Not, not necessarily landed, docked. Um, yeah, yeah. They I'm were that they were destroyed. Now, destroyed. What do you were, mean? They were they they were physical papers. Obviously, they didn't have computers back then. Um, or if they did, they weren't you know used for that. So they're physical pieces of paper that, you know, you hand in like immigration slips when you like land in certain countries. Yeah. Those yeah. literal physical pieces of paper were destroyed because um, the Home Office moved physical buildings. They moved offices um, and, you know, they didn't have room for them. So they destroyed them. But then how can the Home Office suddenly say that it's up to you to prove your residency here? If- that's a question of the day. That's a question of the year. <laughs> So essentially, and I wish I was like exaggerating, but the person that kind of whistle blew on this specific thing, he hasn't, he or she hasn't been named. Um, so any articles on them just say, you know, a member of staff at the um, home office, you know, said they distra- destroyed thousands of landing card slips that would have recorded those those years um, that people were coming in because obviously um, they wouldn't necessarily all have had a passport that they still had right now because obviously you know you, you're old I don't know where my old passports are but for example if you're now in your 80s or 90s you're not exactly gonna have a passport from when you were 22 are you you might really? not even remember where you put your passport if you're in your 80s or 90s and fair enough <laughs> and obviously you don't have to have a passport to prove that you're a citizen because they have record of it but for some reason, all of these records have disappeared. I mean, I'm sorry, but this is fully not on those that came over. How is this even up for debate? It's actually insane. 
Exactly. But because this is not necessarily um, kind of happening at the same time as the hostile environment policy. So, you know, Theresa May's done a hostile environment thing and everyone's, you know, having to be more afraid and the burden of proof is on people. But then these landing cards being destroyed is kind of a separate thing, maybe. is That's what we've been led to believe. I don't know how true right. it is. I don't really know what I believe anymore. Um, but so, yeah, these two things kind of happen at the same time. So then a lot of people, that would have been their one way to prove, essentially, that they were citizens and they had the right to be here. But they couldn't do that anymore because those cards had been destroyed. Um, and so you have people now being approached by the home office you know letters in your post um i think there's a woman called paulette wilson she literally had a letter in the post saying you're an illegal immigrant um, and you need to leave um and her work fired her um and she was kind of just like how can i be an illegal immigrant i've been in the country for like 60 years how how is that possible um and the same with anthony bryan um who we who sorry the um show sitting in limbo that was about his life um yeah. his brother was the director of that um and that they picked up his story so those two stories were they broke first there was a journalist called Amelia Gentleman she's since written a book called um Windrush I think Windrush Scandal the Betrayal and I'd advise anyone to read that I haven't read it yet but um I've been told it's really really good wow and they the, literally wasn't for kind of her picking up those stories and other journalists at the time the public would not have known about it and the fact that their stories were picked up it meant that other people you know who were being told that they're illegal immigrants from the same Windrush generation were then able to contact their lawyers or contact their MPs and say oh I think this is happening to me as well and that's when the kind of cases started to be built together because otherwise you've just got lots of isolated incidents in different parts of the country where people yeah. are like oh, actually no I am a British citizen um, and as we saw in the show, he had to prove he was a citizen by, you know, having photographs of like his whole childhood and his whole life in this country, having to get um, pay slips um, from, you know, all the jobs he's worked. Like, I've, I'm only I'm only 23. I don't think I could do that for my whole life, let alone no. someone in their 60s and 60s and beyond. But it's just so much labour. But right. I mean, and even you're not doing allowed to work in this time and you're not allowed yeah. to rent. So unless you own a house or you're with someone that can pay the rent then you know you're homeless and that did happen to a few people they ended up homeless while they fought so their then case what happened to them afterwards did they get compensation um so basically there was a big thing obviously you know this all went out Theresa Mays apologized Amber Rudd the home secretary after apologized Pretty Patel apologized but you know apologies to me, they're very empty when they come from politicians. I don't believe them. And also, they aren't going to bring back the time lost, the stress, the anguish, the hurt. Some people, you know, I hate to bring a downer to this, but there were a few cases where people passed away before they were able to prove um, the fact that they were citizens. And some people died. I think there were two cases where the person died of a heart attack. Um, oh, and stress, stress. Yeah, stress is one of them, you know, contributes to a heart attack. And like the stress of someone saying to you, you know, you're going to get sent to Jamaica, a place where you haven't been since you were maybe, you know, 10 or maybe 20 at best. Um, they the British government set aside 500 million pounds for compensation which you know I when I saw that number I was like whoa was it really that many people affected um however I think thou a couple thousand I think it's four thousand three thousand or four thousand people have put in a claim for compensation so maybe on behalf of a parent or a sibling or there's obviously lots of different you know reasons why you would claim if you had to cover someone's rent while they were 
not allowed to work maybe that could be a claim or if you were the person that it affected um so obviously not everyone that made a claim was necessarily forced with um deportation of all of you know that money i think only about 140,000 of it has been like given away and one of the cases got 100,000 so 40,000 has been split between probably maybe 10 I think they said of the other people um so there's only about you know no more than 20 people have actually received any compensation and some people haven't actually received compensation in full now my issue is they were so quick to put people in detention centers so quick to ruin their lives and their families lives but this compensation is taking an awfully long time it's 2020 and I understand you know there's been a pandemic and maybe that could have slowed things down but I'm sure the government are working from home and I'm sure I've seen the government doing other things so if you yeah. can if you can sort other things out, then you can run people their money. When people say, if people have the audacity to say, oh, you know, Brit- Britain isn't racist. Britain doesn't have systemic racism. This is, I, I don't know, like this just yep. completely epitome. This just would not happen to white people. It wouldn't. Like, oh, it makes me so angry and frustrated. And I can't even imagine how, how you guys feel. And it oh, just makes me so sad. Yeah, Ugh. it's... It's a weird one because I remember at the time the story was breaking, I remember the first thing when I heard it, the first thing I said to my mum was like, does Nan have all her papers? Like, is Nan, like, is this going to happen to to Nan? Because does she have everything in place? Like, thankfully her passport is like in date and everything. She, this wouldn't necessarily happen to her. But the fact that that is something that's, you know, at the back of your mind, maybe as a Caribbean person, but not even as just as a Caribbean person, because it seems to be like, you know, this government just changes the goalposts every single time you think you know you're safe and I was watching a documentary about the NHS staff um, that came over in the Windrush generation and one of the women said she was like it's like every time you felt secure it was like the sand just shifted under your feet and there was a new goalpost and something new you had to do and I feel like this government just constantly moving the goalposts it's like you can't settle here it's like I feel like genuinely at this point in British like society you know with coronavirus and black people dying at disproportionate rates with the black lives matter movement i genuinely feel like you just cannot be black in britain and be at peace i think the thing about like living in this country is just the fact that you know as a black person you're just kind of never really comfortable um it's really funny like i don't know maybe my granddad's like prophetic but he used to always say um when we were younger and he moved back to Jamaica. So he retired. He was one of the people that kind of said, you know, I'm not going to retire in a cold country. And he retired back home for him. Um, and he always used to say, like, you know, we should always have a house um, in Jamaica. We should always have somewhere to stay for when the government change their mind um, oh. and start sending us back. And it's so funny because it's happened. And like, he's not alive right now. So he, he would he did. He was alive in 2017, though. And he did know. And when we told him about the like the Windrush generation, the whole thing. He was like, yeah. I told you so. He was literally like, he was grinning. He was like, not obviously not happy, but he was like, didn't I say this? Have I not been saying this? And just thinking about it, it's really funny. There's um the first black sitcom in the UK called Desmond's, written by um a black director. It's the first one. He, I think it's Trick Swarrell, um, who directed it. The right. first episode, I was re-watching, well, watching it for the first time. I hadn't seen it before, even though it came on in the 80s. The mm. first episode, he literally says... um something along the lines of you know we need to have a house back in Guyana um for when I can't remember the prime minister at the time I don't know if it's or oh, who is it I can't remember who whoever it was he goes just in case they change their mind and start sending us back and he's oh. whole, the whole episode the whole show the six seasons of the show he's trying to work up to get his house um his money to get a house back in Guyana um and the actor unfortunately passed away 
before the show finished, but they ended it there because they didn't want to do it without him. Um, so his character never got to go back to Guyana. But yeah, it's just yeah. the same sentiment. It's just a common feeling within black people in this country. Um, and I think a lot of black people now have started to even hold dual citizenship for the countries that they came from because it's just that fear. It's not It's not ideal. <laughs> it's just... I, when people say about, oh God, I mean, that's just awful. Like, I, can't, I just can't even imagine. Yeah, uh, especially because like, you know, as a black person in Britain now, like for me, let's say, I am technically speaking as British, you know, as you, we're both born here. You are British, Diana. <laughs> but I, I will promise you, I, you know, no need, you know, to be sad for me, but I have, ne- I will never, I don't think, and I have never ever felt British, like nationality wise, yes. And, you know, of course I'm born here and I've been educated here and I've grew up here, grown up here, mm-hmm. but I would, I just don't feel like this government not does things for me, but I don't feel like there are systems in place to necessarily benefit me within this country. So yeah. I personally don't really like to identify as British. I don't really do so unless it's literally, you know, for a legal reason. Because yeah. I just I don't feel part of this. I don't I don't want to be part of this. I don't want to be part of the racism and the xenophobia and the deporting people to countries that they've never been to. Like I'm I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. I think yeah, this country has a long way to go. Um, and I think the quicker it stops looking at America's racism um, as very problematic and starts yeah. looking at their own, I think they'll yeah. be a, be- a lot better off. Yeah, you're so right. So <laughs> right. There is a lot of white guilt on social media. Um, there is. There I, is a lot. <laughs> there is a lot. Um, I hope that it somehow forces action. Yeah, um, same. What- and I hope to any, you know, white people listening and UK, <laughs> they're shame. Yeah, but I think, <laughs> you know, white guilt is all fine. Guilt is fine. But I think when the debate then starts centering around white guilt and feelings of guilt, it's a problem. As I've, yeah. I've seen a lot of, of debates, you know, about George Floyd and his like death, you know, rest in peace, George Floyd, and all of those have died at the hands of the police. But it turns into then a conversation about white guilt and this is not what it needs to be kind of thing. It, yeah. You know, a man died. Um, men are dying women are dying in custody you know because of racism and yeah we have to center the right things with this whole debate you know when it comes to racism generally um, and when it comes to even like other forms of discrimination you can't center you know your own guilt you have to center the experience of those who are affected and being discriminated against yeah um, and if anyone takes wants to take anything from this episode please do take that <laughs> yeah oh my gosh it's it's just so necessary for change to happen and I can only I can only hope that the current I don't know what do we even call it the social political climate I think it I think history will maybe um, remember it as a civil rights movement it is that big it's global well I mean that's great I mean I hope so (laughs) I think we need one I think we need about 10 but (laughs) we'll get there one day How are you feeling at the moment? Are you all right? Yeah, I'm great. I mean, I study black history every single day. So I am learning nothing new in this. Not not like I'm learning nothing. Oh, gosh, no one can educate me. (laughs) But like, as in reading about, you know, the Windrush scandal again, it's like, but this is what my dissertation's on and doing police brutality. And I'm like, oh, well, 
you know, I've read about that before and nothing is different. I find like the police brutality now, it happened in the nineties and eighties and seventies and sixties and fifties and every moment before then. So I don't know, for me, it's a weird one because I'm glad that everyone is having these conversations, but then there's also part of me that's like, you know, where were you guys before? Like, yeah. This has been a this has been an issue. It's been a problem. It's been our lived experience. Um, but you know, I'm happy that people are standing up and taking note now. And I think it's always it would have always taken more than just black people to fight for equality. It, you know, we have to dismantle certain structures, and we can't really do that without allies and without you know people in different communities. So I'm happy it's yeah. happening now. I'm 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 feeling positive. I'm feeling powerful. I'm feeling I'm feeling heard. So that's nice. Well, that's bloody good. Well, I'm, I'm pleased you are. <laughs> uh, that makes that makes me feel happy. But <laughs> God, um, what out of interest? Why do you think now? Um, why do you think the protesting and the civil rights movement? Hopefully, we can call it that now. Yeah. Um, why do you think that it's picked up um, um, in this particular instance? I think. I do think coronavirus has a lot to play. I think, especially in America, um, they don't have a furlough system like we do. So there are people out there that genuinely have had no income since March um, and aren't looking like, you know, they'll have a job to go back to. They are struggling to pay rent and they have a lot of time on their hands. And with very little to lose, I think you have to you have to stand up and you have to cry out because, you know, what are you what are you there to lose? And I think even in Britain, I think people just have more time to kind of, to do the reading, to do the work. Um, Because this is, that's all it needed ever was people to actually sit down and understand what black people were trying to say. Um, Mm. And I think that that time is being given to it now. And I think also for some people, I think enough was just enough, especially within the context of, you know, black people dying at disproportionate proportionate rates here and in America because of coronavirus. You've got NHS workers that, as we've said, have come to rebuild the country um, were taken out of retirement in some cases. I remember when the government had the adverts, you know, if you were a nurse that has retired or a doctor, can you come out of retirement to help fight the virus? And those people were dying as well. So it's just a case of like, how much sacrifice can we give to your country without you even, you know, acknowledging us or giving us basic human rights to live here and to stay here without being harassed? So I think it's just, a, I think it's a culmination of, you know, this Windrush scandal happening in 2017 into like, the coronavirus black lives matter i think everything is just coming together and yeah yeah just a culmination really i guess it's very easy to say state your intentions about what you're going to do i think that's part of my inner cynicism um sees a lot of people posting about intention um and there's that little voice in my head that's going is this going to still be here in three months time? Like when things open up again, how are you going to follow through with your words? Exactly. When you've got, you know, work and things to other things to think about, you know, will this, you know, will something else take up the space of Black Lives Matter in your mind? But it better not. Well, we hope not. (laughs) We can only hope. Okay. As well, I wanted to ask a little question because I saw your tweet. I think it was perhaps two nights ago maybe even last night who knows um and it was saying about um the statues and how you didn't see it necessarily as a what was it sort of it was I can't remember your phrase but it was like a big deal yeah um 
Can you explain a bit more about that? I feel like my, someone's be like, I found your Twitter. I'm calling out your tweets. Um, I guess. <laughs> I'm a little social media rat. <laughs> no, I love it. It's fine. Um, and I, I stand by all my tweets, all of them. This is the last one. <laughs> so I just feel like for me, it's it's just distracting us from the, the main issues. Like if Winston Churchill stands there or if Winston Churchill does not stand there, Black people are still oppressed. Yeah. So my thing is, while you all, not you all, but, you know, while everyone has these big, big debates and conversations about a statue that, you know, is really going to bear very little reference to, you know, a black person being accosted and brutalised by the police, we're, mm. we're, we're not thinking about something else that, in my opinion, is slightly more important. Whilst I will say, you know, in academia, we've had um, the campaign for Roads Must Fall. That started in 2016. Um, it started in South Africa for the statues of Cecil Rhodes um, to come down. He was just a oh, awful coloniser of, you know, the region of like South Africa, Zimbabwe and Zambia. And mm-hmm. just did just awful things there. Um, and those statues have come down. And I think that if, you know, people that go to those institutions, they should feel that, you know, they can campaign for those statues to come down and I think that I was don't get me wrong I was really happy to see um the one in Bristol come down like I I I still laugh you know from the bottom of my stomach when I see it go into the river like it's just beautiful (laughs) gorgeous it's just oh I honestly like I was having a bad day on Sunday and I was instantaneously cheered up by that video but I just think that there's just a lot of energy going into them and I find that a lot of um racist white people are using this as a kind of oh my gosh you know they're changing our whole culture they're taking away our statues they're taking down our heroes they're rewriting history and erasing the past that they don't like and that's literally not what it is and every person that has to explain to them why that is not really the case I just feel like you're wasting your breath because it's a statue and I don't get me wrong I would love to see all of them come down I just I don't really see why we put on literal a literal pedestal people that have done such atrocities and Winston Churchill I think he should definitely come down um but yeah I just think at in this moment because the movement started with you know a man being killed by the police I think I would like to see maybe more focus on that um yeah not like real you can yeah um, you can focus on more than one thing at a time I'm I know that, but I just felt like it was very, it was very symbolic, but will it actually bring about actual change? That was my, mm-hmm. my main issue behind that whole, whole thing. That is very interesting. But if, you know, people want to take down any more statues, like I, you have my full backing, keep going. Power to the people. I think somebody was saying some, essentially like you can't erase history or, you yeah. know, it was yeah. like words to that effect of just, you know, bonkers idiocy. Yeah. The thing is, Sorry, just to cut you, someone wrote a beautiful article today in The Guardian. I think her name is Lydia something. I cannot remember what, but I'm going to kind of paraphrase what she said. But essentially, the funniest thing about that is historians, our whole job, our whole career, our whole being is rewriting history. That is literally what we do. It's what the government pays us to do. These institutions pay historians to rewrite history. We rewrite it in the context that we're writing in. You know, we take new sources and we apply them to the situation. We interpret them and we rewrite it. There is not one single story in history that is completely true and accurate because there are biases on any side. So true. It's even like with Churchill, though, didn't I mean, I'm going to paraphrase Winston uh, here, but didn't he say like history will be kind to me because I will write it? Yeah, literally, as a white man, he wrote it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like, well, well, Winston, 
<laughs> he didn't realize that uh you know non-white people were actually gonna you know get degrees one day and start writing history so, yeah, so we're coming I remember Winston <laughs> I mean yeah it even reminds me of that quote that you said um yeah what um, lion it's um, an African proverb I think it's like until the lion learns how to write every story will glorify the hunter ah so there we go. This, that's exactly what it is Katie I feel like we've come full circle oh my goodness oh dear well honestly it is just such a delight learning from you thank I, you I think... so much for having me it's a delight to teach and just speak really because you know history is quite a um isolating task it's just reading and writing so I, I love having the opportunity to speak so thank you so much for giving me this little platform to do so I do really think that people are, are really listening and engaging with your content a lot and I'm glad it just makes me so happy that you're willing to offer your unique insight and I think you don't owe it. <laughs> you don't owe it to me. You don't owe it to anyone. But like no, you, are just, I'm very, very grateful. You know, it's an inevitability. I say this after pretty much every episode with you. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get you to come on again, please. Well, I'll get my thinking cap on for next time. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dee, you're an icon. Thank you so much. Thank you for um, having me. Thank you. Loads of love and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you very much. You too. Bye. Bye.